From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Uh, it's critical that everybody understands what that is and how it plays a part uh, in basically everything we do, not only in the workplace, but uh, on a personal level. That's Steve Marsh talking about unintentional bias. We'll hear more from Steve later in the show. We'll also talk to Linda J. Carpenter about leadership strategies for women and Jesse Ehrenfeld about improving care for LGBTQ patients. That's all coming up on this episode of Insights. But first, a word from our sponsor. Can't make it to New Orleans? Let us simplify the annual conference experience by delivering premier content to your home or office with MGMA 19 Live. This online event includes 12 of our top sessions, as well as three exclusive sessions, all streamed live. Join us for content that can start improving your team's performance right now. For more information, visit mgma.com slash online. A recent article in The Atlantic states there is bias across nearly every field and for nearly every group of people. If you're a Latino, you'll get less pain medication than a white patient. If you're an elderly woman, you'll receive fewer life-saving interventions than an elderly man. If you're a man being evaluated for a job as a lab manager, you'll be given more mentorship, judged as more capable, and offered a higher starting salary than if you were a woman. Researchers have identified more than 150 types of unconscious bias. And if you doubt its pervasiveness, consider this. Manager and senior executive roles in the private sector are still 86% white and 70% male. While we can't cover all 150 types of bias in this episode, we decided to unpack a couple of them. Steve Marsh is the president of the Medicus firm. He spent 26 years in provider recruitment and the last few have been recruiting executive positions in healthcare. I asked him to define unintentional or unconscious bias. You know, just as a term, unintentional or unconscious bias, uh, it's defined as, you know, basically stereotypes or beliefs that, uh, that affect our actions in a, in a discriminatory manner, uh, and we're not even aware of it. Uh, most of the time, uh, when you're not aware of something, uh, they were formed just throughout your life experiences. So it, uh, it talks about patterns of behavior uh, that people have based on uh, some of the biases created just by um, you know, where they grew up, what kind of environment they uh, have been in. Uh, sometimes those can be uh, created by just uh, individual experiences uh, you know, with people that then uh, allow you to determine you know, perhaps, you know, what, you know, you, you will have the belief that, you know, any interaction with somebody that fits into a category is going to create that same result. So uh, it's, it's something that all of us have, uh, and it's something that's being tackled right now uh, by a number of large companies, and it's really come to the forefront, uh, even though it's been around for decades. Uh, I believe it's really come to the forefront uh, in the last five to, to probably six years. Now, how prevalent a problem is this in the workplace, whether it's in the existing culture or in that hiring process? Well, I think it's very prevalent uh, simply because unintentional bias or unconscious bias is just that. 
if we're not aware of it, uh, that means it is creeping into the workplace or even outside the workplace uh, in anybody's interactions. So how prevalent a problem it is, I think it exists uh, nearly everywhere. I mean, when you look at uh, all the, the studies and research done, um, you know, everybody has these unconscious biases based on the experiences they've had and uh, they'll be growing up again or, or in, in a workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, give us an example then of how it, how it does manifest itself with employees. When, you're, when you are having those communications, what, what does it look like? Well, I think when you, uh, you know, let's take uh, diversity hiring. So when you're interviewing and uh, you've got a search committee or you've got a, a hiring authority or a group of hiring authorities meeting about various candidates, an example would be uh, whenever you hear the question, uh, well, I just don't think that person's a fit. And that person then can't define fit. And it's just a feeling or or something that they just felt when they met or they reviewed somebody's information. I think that's always an alarm uh, bell that should ring that maybe un, you know unintended or unconscious bias has crept into the evaluation process. And that's why when you uh, you know, tackle this problem, uh, it's really important to not only uh, allow people to know that that it exists and to raise awareness of the issue. Uh, but to try to focus everything that you uh, can on competency as opposed to those feelings. Mm-hmm. When you're uh, developing awareness programs, when you're training the staff to, um, you know, not have these, these bias in uh, the way they interact, the way they interview people, what's the ultimate goal? Are you looking for a more diverse workplace? Well, I think the objective is that through the hiring process, uh, you are focusing all your efforts on hiring the most competent people that you can. And that's the big difference, right? Making sure that an unconscious bias hasn't crept in. If you're between two candidates uh, when hiring somebody, that you aren't allowing uh, a bias uh, that isn't focused just on competency to creep in uh, into the hiring decision. Uh, you know, I personally believe, and I think there's statistics to back it up, that when you focus on competencies, you naturally uh, uh, become a more diverse workplace. Um, and when I say a more diverse workplace, I'm talking about uh, not only uh, the things that we often think about, you know, race, religion, gender, those things, uh, but also uh, the way people think. Um, a lot of times I think when people hear inclusive uh, in diversity hiring, uh, they simply, you know, they think that only means, uh, you know, based on some of those uh, protected categories. Uh, it's important to understand that a diverse workplace is not only a good mix of uh, everybody in terms of those categories, but also a good mix of, uh, of people in terms of how they think. Uh, I know that when we, you know, started our firm, uh, my two partners and I, we'd have some pretty spirited partner meetings. And one of our favorite quotes was, uh, if two partners think alike, uh, one's not necessary. And uh, we felt that the fact that we had different viewpoints that we brought into those meetings uh, helped us to evolve as a, as a company and grow. Uh, I would say that applies to the same thing uh, with with what the ultimate goal of uh, you know of of recognizing that unintentional bias uh, exists and that we need to get rid of it. Uh, you end up with the most competent, diverse uh, thinking group possible, which if you can achieve that, normally means a lot of growth. 
So what are some of the steps that healthcare providers can take to develop a more diverse organization? Um, so I would just encourage everybody to, uh, to be introspective and to look at their organization. Uh, this, this topic is created uh, to stir thought um, and to then uh, hopefully take action. But it is, uh, it is something that I think, you know, once people get passionate about it, they start implementing, uh, you know, some of the competency-based, um, you know, things uh, in their hiring process. And then they really look at their culture and make sure it's inclusive. Uh, they're going to start seeing some real uh, uh, return on investment as far as all that time put in. Uh, there are significant statistics that say uh, if you have a diverse workforce and uh, you have an inclusive culture, that, uh, that you're going to be much, much more productive and you're probably going to be much more on the cutting edge of uh, whatever it is that you do because you'll have a variety of ideas to, uh, you know, to, uh, to choose the direction of your organization. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us and sharing these insights today. Uh, Of course, I'm glad to be here. A 2016 survey of women in technology revealed that the vast majority experienced both subtle and overt bias in their careers. While the technology sector gets all the headlines, the bias seems to be consistent across all industries, including healthcare. Linda J. Carpenter is a clinical psychologist and CEO of Carpenter Smith Consulting. Her focus has been on healthcare transformation and the role of women in the workplace. Now, what we know is that diversity is critically important to good decision-making and great leadership. And if you think about it, women are 50% of the population, but often far underrepresented. But in addition to that, that 50% has their intersecting diversity. So racial, economic, educational, um, location. And so, you know, part of what the research is finding is that women bring a diverse perspective, both because of their gender and because of their intersecting diversities. And so what I find so powerful is that at this point, what we know in healthcare is that, you know, women make 80% of the buying decisions and they are about 65% of the workforce in healthcare, but they're very underrepresented in leadership. So, you know, about 30% are in the C-suite, about 13 to 15% are CEOs. And so part of what really strikes me about this is that if we don't start helping women step into their leadership, even if they're not yet in the role of leader, we're not going to see women step into leadership roles. And so part of what I am passionate about is helping women lead from whatever role they're in and learn the skills to really navigate on their own behalf as they're trying to step into actual leadership roles. Mm -hmm. That statistic's interesting. You quoted they make about 80% of the decisions, uh, financial decisions in uh, a household. I think in my own, I would say it's closer to 100% that they make. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. And particularly in healthcare. I mean, women are the deciders. Absolutely. So what is the unique quality then? You're talking about diversity and uh, what women bring to decision-making to leadership? Is there something in the DNA that's hardwired? What is it that uh, they bring that's unique to the table? Well, what we're finding is that women tend to be more relational in their 
in their approach to the world. And it's interesting, a number of years ago, I had a CEO say to me, a male CEO said to me, I would be a great leader if it weren't for those damn people. And, you know, I just roared, right? Because mm -hmm, of course, mm -hmm. it's about those people. And part of what we're finding is that women are more relational in the way they think. They're more often more innovative and creative in the way they solve problems. They bring in more diverse perspectives. They're more collaborative. Now, again, you know, some are and some aren't, but as a rule, that's true. Now, the, the good news about that is that given the increased complexity in the world and particularly in healthcare, it is really, really important to have the right people at the table when decisions are being made, and certainly those people who are going to be affected by those decisions. And women have more of a tendency to do that. At the same time, women as a rule tend to be less exposed to finance and um, contracting. And so oftentimes they're overlooked because they don't have that piece of the pie. And so it is important that as we utilize this kind of unique approach that women bring to the table, we also ex expand their skill set in some of the uh, more financial aspects of the business. They don't have to be the experts if if they bring to the table the experts. And that's that's what the research is showing women do. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about women looking to gain equal footing in the business world in general. But what about in the healthcare world? What have you seen in your research where women stack up in leadership roles? Well, it's interesting that you ask because what what we know at this point is that while there's still a limited number of women in healthcare leadership roles, there are more women in healthcare leadership roles than in the general corporate leadership roles. And so healthcare is actually doing fairly well in that regard, although there's much work to be done. What what I find often is that in healthcare, it's not that people articulate a bias against women. It's simply that everybody is has certain habits and patterns that often elevate the authority and expertise of men over the authority and expertise of women. And so, you know, oftentimes I see individual leaders, women and men, who are really promoting women, diversity, different voices, different perspectives. But I'm finding that not very many healthcare organizations that we work with, and even that I read about, are doing a formal plan to elevate the voices of women in the workplace. And and actually, sadly, that's going to be needed because it's some of the subtle things that undermine women's authority. And so, you know, I think at many meetings, men talk more, women sit back more. And yet what we know is that how much you talk and your willingness to interrupt actually conveys a certain amount of authority. So simply sitting back and listening being more relational and being respectful can actually shoot women in the foot. And so, you know, both women and men need to change some of those things so that everybody's voice is heard. We know that there's lots of leadership models out there and they're very, very good, very powerful. What we found is that, is that there are three steps that women can take. Any one of them will elevate their impact. Using them together can really help them change the way they show up in their world whether it's their role as leader or in their role having a voice in a conversation. Mm -hmm. Can you go into more detail about what those steps are then? 
Yes. Well, you know, the first thing we tell people is that they need to pause. So if you think about pausing, people say, oh, so I just need to shut up. And I think, no, no, no. Pausing is a very active strategy. The pause is an opportunity to ask yourself, is what I'm about to say or do in alignment with my goals? And as a woman, if my goals are to show up more as a leader, then sometimes that means I need to speak up more. If my goals are to invite others to leadership, my goals may be to ask better questions and then be quiet and listen. If I'm a man in leadership and my goal is to help women show up more effectively, it may be the my goal is to pause and invite other people's perspectives, particularly the women in the room. So pausing is extraordinarily powerful. We call it a fundamental pause because it's so fundamental to business and success and leadership. Then the second step is to ask yourself two questions. Now, what we know is the research on leadership suggests that successful leaders know themselves and understand themselves and understand the people they're trying to lead. And lots of people know that, but they don't know what to do with that. So we've designed two different sets of questions that can really accelerate that. One is about yourself. And we know that fear is the biggest derailer in leadership. And so the first question that you ask yourself as a leader is when you're reflecting on what's going on in me is what am I afraid of in this situation? What would I do when I, what do I do when I feel that? What would I do if I felt safe and powerful and at my best? Because that's the action you want to take. And you want to ask, what are the people I'm trying to lead to afraid of? And that may be subordinates, what are they afraid of, that they'll fail, that they'll look stupid, or even your bosses that you're trying to lead. They're afraid of the, you know, the, the budget, they're afraid about the board's decision. People have a lot pressing on them. And that understanding of what they're afraid of and what they typically do with that fear can help leaders start to think about how do I help them feel at their best, show up at their best, because that's the act of leadership. And then the third uh, step is to think about how you're going to act. And we've created a simple framework that's act with power, P-O-W-E-R. So the P is looking for the possibility inherent in the obstacles and challenges, because that's what great leaders do. They don't take the obstacles and challenges and just stop. They look for what's possible. Then they own the success. They take ownership of what they've done that's contributed, and they own it when they make mistakes, and they share why it's important to them. Then they create we-focused goals. It sounds so silly, we-focused, mm -hmm. but it's so funny. When people hear it, they nod, because being a part of a we that's creating the goals and feels a shared ownership of the success of those goals is very powerful for people. Then the E is that they enable action. Now, sometimes the action is really movement towards the goal. Sometimes the action is the decision to wait, but it's a shared decision of waiting. And so it's an active goal in some paradoxical ways. And then the R is to review and refine, go back around. So what we found is when people start to use those three steps, they're very quickly powerful. And, you know, I've had people say to me, starting to pause and ask myself is what I'm about to say or do in alignment with my goal has changed my impact in my meetings with my teams and even in my family and my community roles.
mm-hmm. because it it raises to a level of consciousness what I'm trying to do versus just our habit. You know, we say that leaders' job is to stop being reactive and start being responsive. And most leaders react in the ways they've always behaved because that's what our brain does. And when you think about women who are trying to kind of overcome stereotypes and norms, they they really need to do things that are responsive to the situation and to their goals rather than reacting to the old messages of, oh, if you're assertive, you're going to be seen as aggressive. If you're, it's 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 a process over and over and over again of stepping into leadership. Mm-hmm. When you think about leadership, you you kind of build that pyramid. Then you look at you know a five year plan. What's your ten year plan? On down the road, um, it, there's a unique situation though when you're talking about women. I'm I'm wondering when you're coaching them, when you're consulting them on that five and ten years out, and they see themselves in this executive role, but what if they also want to have that family and there are those stops and starts in the career um mm-hmm. how do you coach them around that how do you help them realize everything they want to achieve professionally but also from a family perspective mm-hmm. well it's interesting you know i was at a meeting earlier this morning with a, a team at a uh, in a healthcare organization that i work with and about half of the of the group are women and about half of those women have young children and you know part of what i find so powerful is women often try to hide i know this sounds ridiculous but they try to hide that they're women they try to hide that they're the ones that give birth that they're the ones that are often initial caretakers and certainly often primary caretakers of those children and so part of what i coach women to do is to name it to really say you know i'm a a woman in my childbearing years I want to be in a leadership role. I want to have an impact on the decisions we're making. I want to be influential as we're thinking about the future. And I'm going to be raising children during this time frame. So we need to look for roles that really use the best of me and that really allow others to pick up the places that I can't contribute right now because of my time frame. You know, it's it's kind of a conversation that doesn't happen because often I think, women have been told that they should should sort of keep it uh, out of view that they also want to be parents. Now, the exciting thing that's happening at the same time from my perspective is that more and more men want very much to be involved in the parenting. And so, you know, I think at the same time, both women and men are starting to say, we need some work-life balance if we're going to be successful. And so it it is coming. And I think, you know, younger workers, as you know, there's lots of people complaining about millennials, but, you know, I think younger workers are saying, listen, I'm really willing to roll up my sleeves and be very dedicated to this work, but I am not willing to give up time with family and time with the people I love. So I think, you know, it's really, it's an incredible time in the history of our culture for women to start to say, I can lead and I can raise a family. What I can't do is I can't work 80 hours a week as a leader and raise a family. So let's look at how I bring my unique gifts and talents to leadership and we make sure we get other people on the team who can cover other areas. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a real world example of a healthcare organization that's either empowered women in the workforce or has built an environment that supports what you're talking about? 
It's interesting. Uh, I think that's a great question. And I, what I see is that in the organizations that I'm working in, and they really range from uh, a large multi-specialty practice to healthcare systems, to academic medicine, to a tiny rural clinic. I mean, it's really the range. What I find is that as they start to bump into attracting the best and the brightest, there are often individuals who lead the charge on, let's look at how we attract a more diverse population. We're not just looking for men. We're not just looking for men in leadership. We're really looking for the voices of women because we need a representative voice of all of our teams here. Um, there is o There are only a couple of organizations that are really creating a more systematic approach to that. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because part of what organizations have to grapple with a bit is I don't even know how to put this into words exactly, except to say that, you know, I think that in healthcare right now, everyone I know is working very hard. It's a really challenging time in healthcare. Men and women are challenged. And so it's very important that leaders aren't saying, men, you're not doing the right things. We are going to go after women. But that that the conversation be, how do we elevate the voices of all of the people in this organization so that we bring the greatest talent and the most diverse perspectives to solving the problems that we have? Because what we know is those, those voices are going to create the results we need. So it, it's a funny time where there is some discussion about making sure that women's voices, diverse voices are brought to the table. Um, and I think a lot of leaders are cautious because physicians in their roles are really stressed and strapped. And I think administrative leaders um, are also really struggling because resources are getting more and more limited. So it's a complex time. And, uh, you know, for me, our goal is always to say, you know, paint the picture of what you are aiming for. So the picture is that we have the the best and the brightest and the most wisdom and the most diverse perspectives we can have because we know those solve problems. Mm -hmm. Then how do we solve for those? Which actually, you know, sadly, you know, I think sometimes saying we need to elevate women's voices, leaders are cautious about that. And and they because they don't want to make the men in the organization feel less valued. And, you know, I know that sometimes women will say to me, how can they possibly feel less valued? They've always been the center. And I think, well, I think that's true. They are quite used to being at the center. And so really, if we get a big backlash from men at the same time we're elevating women, it's going to slow everything down. So really, it's how do we do both? Really help men see the benefit of having women's leadership and women's impact and women's wisdom and women's authority and help women claim that authority. This week, the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, the largest LGBTQ advocacy group in the country, released its 12th annual Healthcare Equality Index, which scores healthcare facilities on the equitable treatment and inclusion of their LGBTQ patients, visitors, and employees. 
They found that 81% of the facilities surveyed are going beyond the basics when it comes to adopting policies and practices in LGBTQ care. Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld is the director of Vanderbilt's program for LGBTQ health and the chair-elect of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Association. Ehrenfeld believes that education of healthcare professionals is key to engaging and supporting LGBTQ patients. The healthcare workforce today that is in practice um, received zero to little education uh, when they were going through their training programs, whether you're a doctor or a nurse uh, or technician, um, about the specific needs of LGBTQ patients. Um, it's an evolving space. Um, the evidence uh, continues to expand. Um, and right now, there is a gap in terms of what people know about how to take care of LGBTQ people, um, as well as from an organizational standpoint, uh, an understanding of what the rights and responsibilities to this uh, often unserved, um, unrecognized population uh, have, have been. Mm -hmm. well, I wanted to talk to you about the unique qualities and where where is the additional care needed or what are what is unique to the patients where the clinicians uh, and other healthcare professionals can provide additional support? Well, it starts with really understanding who your, your patients are and um, that's a very simple uh, thing to do, um, but it requires a recognition of the need to do it. Um, if I'm taking care of a patient who's coming in for, for complex surgery, is gonna have a long road ahead of them, I, I need to understand who is their support system? Who's going to help get them through that procedure uh, and the recovery uh, and on to health? Um, and that involves understanding their family, their living situation, who's a part of their life. If I can't have a, an open, honest conversation with my patients about uh, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, um, who their partners are, uh, that's going to impede their ability to get the, the care that they need and my ability to take care of them as a clinician. Um, and so that's a, a, the starting point before you even get into some of the nuanced issues around specific care recommendations that are different uh, for LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. are, are there presently areas where healthcare organizations have made strides or they're getting it right in uh, treating these patients? There are many examples of, of outstanding facilities that have done really, really a great job of pulling together uh, comprehensive multidisciplinary services for LGBTQ people. Uh, they're places you would expect. Um, University of California, San Francisco uh, has been a longstanding um, front runner in this space. Obviously, we're very proud of the work we've done at Vanderbilt University, uh, but they're places that you might not expect. Uh, the University of Mississippi um, has a growing LGBT um, program. Um, Oregon Health Sciences University, uh, Mount Sinai in New York. Um, there are a dozen uh, community centers across the country uh, Fenway Health, Howard Brown, um, places like that that have um, had a, a long-standing commitment to taking care of LGBTQ patients. Um, and what we're starting to see now um, is organizations um, across the country are recognizing um, that they need to really understand how they can best serve um, all patients, including LGBTQ patients, in ways that um, heretofore weren't happening. Mm -hmm. Now. You've said that strides have been made, so where are we in, in sort of making this uh, a priority and what, where would you like to see it? I mean, you're, you're out there um, advocating, you're, you're helping people understand, so what's your ultimate goal then? Where do you want to, this to be? 
Well, unfortunately today, LGBTQ people are less likely to be insured. They're less likely to uh, live as long as their um, straight counterparts, and they're less likely to be as healthy. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that, that drive that. Um, we know that the social determinants of health are, are a big component, um, but we also know that um, access and finding uh, affirming healthcare settings is a, is a big barrier that also plays an important role. And so uh, my hope is that someday those disparities go away, um, but that will require um, facilities and individual practitioners uh, to recognize uh, these unique needs uh, to ultimately eliminate those disparities. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about in the healthcare world about data, uh, big data, all this information that we have, um, but often there it boils down to a lack of data analysis. And um, is there a way? Is there we have all this information out there? Can we? Is there a better way to study that information so then it can better inform how healthcare professionals can then engage with different patients, whether they be uh, of the LGBTQ community, uh, they're seniors, that we, we have another presentation at annual conference that's on marketing connect and connecting with uh, millennials and Gen Z. So there are all these different cohorts and groups out there. Uh, how do we communicate better with them? Well, I, I think it's a great question. We, we have a ton of data that every day as a clinician I'm swimming in and in my program director role at Vanderbilt, I am lost in, and yet very little information about the person in front of me. Um, and, and that is a problem that the industry has not yet sort of confronted in a meaningful way consistently. And so information gets hidden. Um, critical pieces of data are lost because they're not either available, presented, or accessible at the right time in the right way uh, that I can actually use it to uh, to take care of a patient. A very simple example um, is one that I think will uh, be obvious to your listeners, which is around preferred name. Now, knowing a patient's preferred name is critically important for a transgender person, right? So having the right name to call them by when they come in uh, to a clinic, a facility, uh, or for uh, some sort of care. Um, but that's information that's actually really important for all patients, right? Knowing the right name to call them so that when I'm trying to wake up, you know, Mr. Jones, I know that it's Bobby and not, uh, you know, uh, Robert, whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be. Uh, it's a simple example, and yet if you look across electronic health records today, um, those preferred name fields often do not show up in places that you'd expect them to, like in the patient's header or on a wristband, um, on a patient uh, who's admitted to a facility, uh, or on their face sheet when they're asked to verify uh, information at, at check-in. Um, it's such a simple little thing, but I think a telling example of how the information may be somewhere, but it's not being used or leveraged in a way that helps us uh, help our patients. So what are the steps a healthcare organization can take to provide better care for LGBTQ patients? Well, it, it um, Taking care of an LGBTQ person starts with understanding who they are, and, and there are study after study that shows that people want to be asked these questions. They're happy to volunteer the information when you ask them about their sexual orientation and their gender identity, whether they're, they're straight, heterosexual, cisgender, transgender, whatever. People do not mind being asked these questions, and, and that's a, 
a concern that I, I hear expressed frequently when we do trainings with providers across the country. Um, but the data are clear. All people want to be asked these questions. They understand that in a healthcare context, they're being asked for legitimate, important reasons to take care of them, not because of you know anybody's personal curiosity. Um, once you understand who a patient is and what they're bringing to the table, um, then we know that the primary care and special care recommendations are different for LGBTQ people, whether it's around vaccinations, um, STD screening, um, breast cancer screening, all sorts of things. Um, those individual recommendations can be tailored for the patient in front of you once you really understand who they are and uh, what their risk of a certain uh, disease entity um, or other problem may be. So I, I would just encourage all of your listeners um, to start by asking simple questions um, about who your patients are, um, institutionalize that into your workflow so that every patient has the opportunity to share that information with you in an appropriate, culturally competent, sensitive way. Uh, and if you want to understand how to do that, uh, certainly would encourage you to come by our presentation at the uh, MGMA annual meeting. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us and sharing these insights. Thank you. Appreciate it. So where are we with bias, inclusion, and diversity in healthcare? As our experts have stated, we have made strides. However, there is still a lot of work to be done. That concludes this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Linda Carpenter, Steve Marsh, and Jesse Ehrenfeld. All of today's guests can be heard speaking at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. For more information, Check out our annual conference blog at mgma.com slash fuse. To register, visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.